Welcome, welcome to episode 12 of the Sisters in Law podcast. I'm your host, Charity Gates, back with a very special guest this week. In honor of the month of love and black history, this week's guest is a sister in jewelry law. Maya Owens brings years of experience in business and intellectual property litigation, corporate compliance, and two information privacy protection certificates to her roles at the Jewelers Vigilance Committee. Before joining the JVC, Maya worked with a diverse client base at two prominent law firms, both specializing in intellectual property matters. During her time at both firms, she received recognition for exceptional service to her clients and her dedication to pro bono advocacy. She then focused on broker-dealer and anti-money laundering compliance matters at a well-known multinational investment bank. In addition to earning her JD from the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law, Maya graduated with honors in technology and communication from Baruch College, where she minored in journalism. I hope you all enjoy some of the gems dropped, pun intended. Here we go. Hello, Maya. Welcome to the Sisters in Law podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So usually when I start the podcast, I like to get acquainted with my guests. And the first question I ask is, what is your origin story and where are you and your people from? Well, I am originally from East New York, Brooklyn, born and raised. I went to school in Brooklyn, except until college. Then I went to Baruch College and the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law. My family's also well, my parents are from Brooklyn, born and raised, but they're both originally from down south, descendants of slaves. So um, like a lot of Southerners back in the day, a few generations ago, they found their way up north for, you know, more opportunities and better lives. I was going to say, it sounds like you adopted their Southern accent a little bit. Really? I thought you would People say, say that, that you're actually from the South. <laughs> People always say that. I've never even, I, I hate to say this, I've never even been... Because most of my family, like immediate family members, moved here so many years ago. So I've never even been to visit most of them in South Carolina, where they're from. Oh, wow. I have a lot of family in South Carolina, so. We could be related. You never know. (laughs) I know. (laughs) You never know. So kind of fast forwarding to your law school journey, what made you decide to attend law school? What was the inspiration and why did you choose the school that you ultimately attended? So I was one of those kids that always wanted to be a lawyer. Kind of like, I actually saw a funny video on Instagram recently where it was like, you know, your mom, because you like to argue, your mom tells you you should be a lawyer. That was me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I used to argue with my siblings. I'm the youngest. And my mom would always say, you should just be a lawyer. You like to argue so much. And I would say, no, I don't like to argue. I just like to let people know that I'm right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that kind of translated into my kind of journey. I ended up going to a college that I didn't originally plan on going to. Hmm. So there was no pre-law major. Um, So I almost took a detour. I was very, very close for three years of college. I was an accounting major. Oh, wow. With the intent of still going to law school after graduation. But my mom then tried to convince me sophomore or junior year that I should work as an accountant for a couple of years, save some money and then go to law school. And I was this close. I had I had a couple of job offers from big four accounting firms, but I found the work so boring and the classes in the school of business were incredibly difficult for me to just regular classes that I was used to kind of 
and not to say college was easy, but it was like pretty easy until I'd started taking, you know, financial accounting and all those other courses. And I was just like, yeah, no, nah, this is this is not it. I don't even want to be an accountant. I want to be a lawyer. So why am I wasting this much time and energy when I know I don't want to do this? So I ended up actually taking the LSAT on a whim, even though I had actually accepted an offer post-grad during my sophomore summer at a big four county firm. Salary was like 60K. So having never made any real money, I was like, oh yeah, that's a good starting salary. I should take that. And I accepted it. And I was just looking forward to doing that. But then I'm like, yeah, let me just still take the LSAT see how I do. And I did okay. I wasn't, you know, top, but I did slightly above average. So then I said, okay, let me apply to some law schools and see if I get in. And I got into every law school I applied to. And I was like, oh, sh- I think that's a sign. It from- was meant to be. It was meant to be. So it was just kind of a matter of going where the money was. I hate to say that. I didn't really aim that high, which is a theme that maybe will come out during the interview. I should have aimed a bit higher. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the highest ranked law school I applied to was NYU. Okay. Um, and I was- Pretty good school still. Yeah, still a pretty, still a pretty good school. They did me dirty for undergrad in terms of scholarships, which is why I didn't go there because I wanted. They didn't offer, they didn't like offer me much, and that was top of my class. But I was still a little salty about that, and then kind of the same similar situation happened for law school. I was waitlisted, and then they called me one day, like right before the semester was going to start, and they were just like, "Hey, you're still interested?" I'm like, "No, unless you're going to give me a full ride." You call wow. me like. A month before school starts, two months before school starts. What the hell? Like a red eye uh, flight. <laughs> yeah, I had already paid my deposit for Cardozo because Cardozo offered me the most money. Or actually, that's a lie. Brooklyn offered me more money, mm-hmm. but with more strings attached. And I did the whole back and forth negotiation. So that's a lesson for for the kiddies out there or the right. adults looking to go to law school. I said, hey, I really want to go here, but I have an offer here. Can you, can you, you know, beat it? And I pretty much did that between... Brooklyn and Cardozo for a week and ended up getting a partial scholarship from Cardozo with no strings attached in terms of GPA, anything. That pre-lawyering skill. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how I ended up at Cardozo. Mm. I said, okay, it's decent. Get some scholarship money, less student loan debt. A full ride would have obviously been ideal, but I didn't get that, but, but I did pretty well. Not many people can say they just took the LSAT on a whim. And yeah, I, I, I'll be honest. I said if I could go back in time, I would have actually retaken it mm. and and aimed for a a few of the top 12s because, as you know, it makes a huge difference in your oh, job yeah. prospects. Oh, yeah, definitely. One of the sad parts of the legal field. And I guess this leads very well into the next question, but also ties into your experience in law school. If you had any advice for yourself back then, what advice would you give law school um, Maya? Law school Maya, uh, so young, so ambitious. Well, pre-law school Maya, again, I would say aim as high as possible. I know some people who had, you know, maybe didn't do as well as I did on the LSAT or didn't do as well as I did in college and they got into higher rank schools than me because they applied to higher rank schools. Right. I didn't even think to apply to Columbia. I didn't even think to apply to any of the other Ivy leagues. It never crossed my mind. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to get in, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't get a top LSAT grade. I just did a little bit of better than average. Right. And who knows, maybe I would have gotten it. The same thing for college. I didn't apply to any Ivy leagues for college should have. So I would say aim as high as possible. The worst you can do is get rejected. Mm-hmm. So what? Retake the LSAT if you don't do as well, just because it really makes a huge difference. And then once you get into law school, if you make that decision, which I have a few points on, I recommend one, getting the outlines as soon as possible Mm -hmm. for your respective classes, get a few different ones, 
find out where the outline banks are, get access to the outline banks. That's something nobody told me. I was a first generation mm-hmm. law student and, and currently the only lawyer in my family. So I had no idea Same. that that was a thing. So I didn't know until, and even when I found out it was a thing, I was so used to being top of the class for my entire life, academic mm-hmm. career, that I was just like, Psh, I don't want some other kids outline and notes. I'm going to make my own. And I was the night before the first semester of finals, I was at my computer like a crazy, like the cat meme, <laughs> crying, literally crying. Wow. Had walking pneumonia. I didn't know that until after. So I'm like shivering and I'm crying, bawling my eyes out, trying to finish my, I think it was Civ Pro or or one of those first semester finals because I didn't have the outline done. And I wanted to make sure it was thorough and it went through all of the notes and the textbook. And I found out, I'm like, why did I waste so much time? Because once I got outlines the second semester and, and, and beyond, all I had to do was edit them as I went, as, as, as I went along. So that would be my advice for that's more practical. My other piece of advice would be care less about people as much as you can. Just in my experience at Cardozo, unfortunately, my section was not the friendliest. And having having been the, you know, someone that people admittedly generally gravitated towards, again, my entire life up until that point, even in college, people just want to be my friend. I had never experienced being kind of the outcast of a class, which mm. which was weird. So like people wouldn't sit next to me, you know, to the point where I'm like, do I smell bad? Like, do I look crazy? Like, is there something wrong? Like, I literally started saying to myself, is there something wrong with me? Mm. Because it was it was the strangest experience, you know, when people would sit next to me and then the seating chart would come out and everyone would move their seat the day of. So I had classes where I was literally the only person in a row. Oh, wow. And I was just like. Am I missing something? Did I do something to, I would also have people where I would say good morning. I had one guy in my class who would say good morning every day on the elevator because we would always come in super early crack of dawn Mm -hmm. and he would not say it back. He wouldn't say anything to me. Wow. That same classmate did not speak to me until like mid semester when I crushed a cold call. And then suddenly he came up to me and was just like, oh, you want to join my study group? Which literally I say good morning to you every day. Mm. I continued to say, even though he didn't respond, just Mm -hmm. because why not? Now you speak to me. (laughs) So it was it was an interesting and unfortunate experience. One can make theories on why that is. I was one of the only black people in my class. You know, I had someone tell me later, oh, it's the way you speak. You sound like you're from, you know, an urban neighborhood. What um, does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> I mean, I am from East New York, Brooklyn, but like that makes it okay for you to treat me differently and in, mm-hmm. in a negative way. So one can theorize. I will say, though, I let that bother me quite a bit because it would irritate me and I was just like Maya come on you you've had people try to bully you elementary school junior high school you never you always let it roll off your shoulder you know what I'm saying so just let it roll off stop caring Mm -hmm. I started enjoying being the only person in a row by the end of the semester second semester I didn't give a damn (laughs) I'm in other sections right Mm -hmm. and then when these people would sit with me I'd be like okay I'm not is there anything like is there something wrong they'd be like what are you talking about Maya you're you're good like relax, you know what I'm saying? And yeah, once I started giving less F words, I started feeling better and doing better. So I would recommend everyone do that in in life and also in law school. Mm, Yeah. As you were talking, this uh, theme of like imposter syndrome kind of came up for me. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of especially black women law students face this day to day in applying to law school, number one, which you touched on, and then like actually being in the law school environment. 
Can you talk about like how you address this in your journey and like how you are dealing with it? So I'll admit I was a very cocky one L. Mm-hmm. Um, my feeling of not belonging was not internal. It was literally external. And unfortunately, when I had classes with other sections, they were just like, yo, your section is wild, like mean. I don't know what it is. The vibe is off. It was just mm-hmm. not a good section for me to be in. Um I was cocky because I did, like I said, I did really well. School was easy for me my entire life. I was always top of my class, you know, awarded student. So I felt like when I entered law school, like, this is nothing. (laughs) I'm going to do my three years, top of the class. I'm going to, you know, get the big firm offer and I'm going to just kill it as usual. And then I got B's uh, my first semester and I was like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, well, B's are not that bad. And then one of our counselors said, if you got a B in Civ Pro, you're going to have a very difficult time getting OCI interviews. And then wow. I was like, oh, that's humbling. Mm-hmm. So I kind of didn't feel like I didn't belong in my law school. I felt like I belonged there and I worked my entire life to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but upon graduation in my law firms, when you know I was given assignments on patent law and I didn't take patent, I was given assignments on, you know, I was managing like actual pro bono cases. And mm. I don't know the procedural rules for New Jersey, you know, even though I was admitted there in New York, I am. So in those moments, I was just like, oh, this is weird. I'm missing, am I missing something? That's a constant feeling. Am I missing something? Just something nobody's telling me. But really the answer is almost always, one, you belong here. You're here for a reason, right? You didn't get here by mistake. And also two, ask questions. And sometimes you're given an assignment because the person who gave you the assignment doesn't know the answer and they want you to figure it out. Maybe there is no answer. Maybe the answer is there is no answer. So in those situations, instead of freaking out, just think to yourself, okay, let me ask, make sure I'm not missing anything. And then once that's clarified, do your best to find an answer. There may not be an answer. Maybe you have to create some law. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, And you already kind of touched on post-grad and what that was like for you. Can you talk about your journey post-grad? You have such an interesting career and I'd I'd love to hear more about how you found your first job Mm -hmm. and even now what your current position entails. So like many students, you know, if you're not top 20, you're bottom 80 in law school. So I was bottom 80. Again, I was humbled by those Bs. Uh, So even though my grades went up, it was kind of hard to overcome a semester of Bs. Even got one C in a crim law, which was weird because I didn't think I deserved that, but in any event. So all of that to say, I did not have any job offer when I graduated. Had a couple of OCI interviews. I was lucky to even have those. Most people didn't didn't get any offers from OCI, 2L or 3L year. Worked at a firm 2L summer small firm, IP, entertainment. They didn't have the funds to hire me at the time. So I was in the position where I'm now about to graduate, I start studying for the bar and I had no job prospects. So, you know, I'm sure you experienced this at some point where they tell you, oh, don't worry about jobs right now. If you don't have an offer, mm-hmm. worry about the bar. I didn't listen to that. I continued to apply and look on Simplicity and look on LinkedIn and look on Indeed almost every day, mm-hmm. even while I was starting to prepare for the bar. And what ended up happening was Cardozo had a program. One can speculate on why they have this program, but on the surface, I'm throwing a lot of shade. I got to stop. <laughs> on the surface, this program is meant to help students who don't have employment close to graduation or at post-grad gain employment 
uh, the RAMP program, which is an acronym for Resident Associate Mentorship Program. It's basically the way it was pitched to us at at that year. It had only been in its second year. Mm. The program is meant to match you with employers who don't normally hire first years. It was initially pitched as mainly being for in-house employment positions mm-hmm. and the employers were listed anonymously. So it was oh, interesting. That's how it initially was. I know they don't oh. do that anymore. Yeah, so I applied. Anymore. Yeah. So it was employer number X employment law, employer number intellectual property litigation. Okay. So I applied to all of the IP related employers mm-hmm. and from, from classmates of mine who had been interviewing, they had all interviewed at either boutique firms or in-house positions. So like one person ended up at a major clothing brand, mm-hmm. well, actually two people ended up at major clothing brands. So I thought employer number 10 or 11 would be something similar. It ended up being a large law firm. Or a law firm that at the time, I know, which is crazy because they only paid you like $38,000 for the year, Mm -hmm. given the hours you work. Um, So at the time it was a me, it was considered midsize. It ended up becoming a large firm by the time I was um, hired and, or by the time I finished my one year there, the whole point was you work for a year. There's no guarantee of working beyond that year, but the hope was you work hard, you'll get an offer. Mm -hmm. Didn't happen for me. So I ended up working at this large IP litigation firm, still same expectations on me as any other associate, but I only got paid like once you do the math, less than minimum wage, right. um, because I was still working and needing to bill 1,900, 2,000 hours for the year. Ended up doing that. Really good experience. Learned a lot. Even though it is a large firm, the New York office at the time was very small because mm-hmm. it's not based in New York. So that allowed me to have almost in a way like a smaller firm type of experience and that I managed actual cases pro bono cases. I wrote, I drafted, I didn't just do doc review like like the stereotypical first year does. Mm-hmm. I actually drafted complaints for really like multi-billion dollar corporations. I drafted a lot of memos like many people do, but I also drafted actual motions that were filed as written, often winning. Yeah. So yeah, so <laughs> it, was, it was a cool professional experience. And it was also devastating to not get an offer after doing that and having great reviews mm-hmm. the entire time. And thinking that or even being told unofficially oh yeah we're definitely gonna hire you and then being told like after the ninth month actually you know given the new organization you know managing partner was no longer in the office I did most of my work for that person she switched states yeah we don't have a place for you so the um, HR speech (laughs) one of those devastating no so I ended up being one of the unfortunate ones. Uh, the other guy in a different group actually ended up getting an offer. So good for him. Hope he's doing well. He was a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, from there, I kind of just scrambled to look. I applied for unemployment for the first time in my life. Interesting. And my old law firm from 2-0 year that did not have the funds to hire me got the unemployment notification. Apparently, they, they contact all of your employees from like the previous two years, right. New York law, apparently. And they were like, why did you apply for unemployment? We thought you were at this big firm doing big things. And I was like, well, joke's on me. And they said, come work for us part time. We'll pay you hourly mm-hmm. until you find something else. Wow. Look at how yeah. the universe works. Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up going back. And then they were just like, oh, wow, your work is really good. Like it was good before, but now it's really good. And I was like, I did just have a year in this firm doing all these motions and memos and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like, yeah, we want to hire you. Um, it's in the budget now. We're doing good. So they ended up hiring me within like a month of me working part time, which was like 50 hours a week. And I ended up working there. It was also IP 
litigation bit of transactional work. It was a really good, I, you know, I, again, I worked, I summered for them. I actually worked for them throughout the school year. So it was just kind of a return to that, Mm. but obviously higher level work, but unfortunately the environment was not really conducive to my mental health. I won't get into the specifics. (laughs) We can talk about that in private. If you ever want to talk about it, Uh, there are lessons. Authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, given that I didn't think it was worth my mental health, especially because again, it was not paying what, what needed to be paid for the type of work I was doing and the hours I was working, you know, a voice, some concerns didn't really, you know, go as planned. So, so I resigned and I took a position as a contract attorney with Morgan Stanley through a third party outsourcing kind of like staffing agency, Mm -hmm. Um, but also the power of networking. I got the interview through a friend from um, college. Wow. I then, I used to intern at Morgan Stanley three a year. So full circle moment. (laughs) Well, no, I actually interned while I was in Cardozo three a year at the New York City Bar Association for financial services law or something like that. It was called AC, Securities and Financial Services Law. So I interned there three a year. So when I went in for this interview, I called my previous internship boss and I was like, hey, I'm interviewing with this other VP in this department in legal and compliance. And he picked up the phone, apparently called her. So when I got to the interview, she's like, I already spoke to this person. 15 minutes after walking out of the interview, the interview was like 10 minutes long. 15 minutes after walking out, I got an offer. <laughs> wow. So once I got that offer, it was on my lunch break. I went back to my firm. I- I drafted my resignation letter. I gave him two weeks notice and I was out of there. And it was a huge pay cut, but it was worth it for my mental health. And then I ended up working there for a bit. But again, in a series of unfortunate events, there was a hiring freeze when I was hired as a contractor. There were no opportunities to be hired as a permanent employee. That freeze apparently went on for another year and change after I left. Mm -hmm. So once I realized that that was not a place for me to gain permanent employment, benefits, security, or some semblance of job security, I started looking elsewhere, looked on Simplicity, even though I was uh, several years out at this point. It was like two years out, three years out. And that's how I stumbled upon my current position. And it was funny because the posting said they wanted somebody with intellectual property law experience, had that from my previous two firms, and compliance and anti-money laundering. And I'm like, that's kind of a weird combination of Mm -hmm. practice areas. But I had that because I worked in legal and compliance at Morgan Stanley. And I worked with a few different groups as a contractor. And I worked as in the final group before I I, um, resigned, I worked on anti-money laundering, their anti-money laundering program. So I was like, oh shit, this is perfect. Um, (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah. So it was like uh, meant to be. I interviewed and started. I just hit my five-year anniversary according to LinkedIn. Let me know. So now I work at the Jewelers Vigilance Committee, which is a over 100-year-old nonprofit trade organization that is dedicated to a few things. But one of the main things is maintaining the integrity and ethics of the jewelry industry. I'm a jewelry attorney now. Nice. (laughs) Diving in the rough, (laughs) literally. (laughs) You withstood a lot of things and it's like incredible to hear the stamina and the determination that you had. Thank you. So after talking about that incredible journey of like going from one job to the next and like really putting yourself out there to find these jobs in the first place, Over the course of your career so far, what has been the best advice you've received? And this could be outside of the legal industry, wherever it came from. (laughs) Um, 
Let's see. Best piece of advice. I guess I could like summarize a few pieces is like preserve your mental health and physical health. Preserve yourself. How about that? At the end of the day, we all want to be successful, right? We all want to, well, I'd say a lot of people want to work hard and, you know, reach certain goals that you set for yourself. But you don't want to or you want to try to minimize any detrimental effects that trying to reach these goals will have on you. So if you're in a in an environment professionally, personally, that is not conducive to your best self and you have an opportunity to get out of that environment, even if it puts you in maybe a less fortunate position temporarily, because I would always say it's always going to be temporary. Do that. If it um, affects you. And I, and I say that. So like my kind of slogan based on that is kind of eliminate all unnecessary discomforts and annoyances. <laughs> so I say that like we're all going to have uncomfortable professional situations. Right. But if it's a constant or if, say, an employer or if a spouse, for example, or family member has shown a blatant disregard for your safety, for example, or a blatant disregard for your professional development, perhaps, that's your cue if you address it and it goes on, you know, the behavior goes unchanged, that's your cue to go. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of us end up in a lot of people and myself included end up in situations where we're very unhappy. It's not good for our, our health to continue in those situations. And we stay because we think we can't do better or we think, well, this is, you know, it's normal to work until midnight and take the train while your other partners take cabs home. <laughs> um, because that's what that's, that's what happens real. when you're a junior associate and then you you find out your friends who work until midnight get taxis home because mm -hmm. it's midnight in new york city and you know people get attacked especially at night you know what i mean so stuff like that you start you know you do your research and you realize okay this is not normal right even in law school i'm like is this experience in my section normal because it's really kind of messing me up and i started right. talking to other people and they're just like no and i'm like is there something wrong with me no Okay, so I I can't remove myself from that situation, right? Because I was assigned that section, but I can remove myself emotionally from mm -hmm. the situation as much as I can and just focus on the teacher, focus on finals and 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 look forward to not having classes with these people in a mm -hmm. in a semester, you know? And just leave it at that. So yeah, I would say focus on yourself and your mental health and your physical health and try to, you know, reach your goals, but not to the detriment of your of your mental health. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> we need more people saying that, honestly. Yeah. It's so simple. Yeah, not enough people. You're like, grind, give up. You, one guy, actually, right. you give up your, your soul when you take the bar, and then you give up your soul when you start working for yeah. a firm. And I'm just like, yeah, no, I'm keeping my soul. Right. Don't and I have no give problem it up twice. But if you're in the right place, it doesn't feel like you're giving up your soul. You're enjoying your work. You're working hard. You're enjoying your teammates. You're not feeling like you're dying. Exactly. Probably not the place for you if that's how you feel. Mm -hmm. It can be done. <laughs> yes, it is possible. So can we talk a little bit more about the the details of your job? What does it look like day to day, the, the stuff of a jewelry lawyer, quote unquote? Mm -hmm. What exactly does it mean to practice jewelry law and what does it entail? So it's an interesting organization. It was apparently formed over 100 years ago because there were some shady dealings in the industry. Mm -hmm. And a group of people got together and they were like, we need to stop the shadiness. And also this is going to mess up the integrity of our industry. People are not going to want to buy jewelry. We need to stop this. And it's evolved over the years to be known as the like legal guardians of the industry that apparently used to be one of our slogans. <laughs> no longer is. So what I do is my position, I'm associate counsel. I, I was initially assistant counsel. And as of a couple of years ago, I'm also the director of the mediation program. So it's a dual role. 
As associate counsel, I work with two other attorneys, our GC and our um, deputy GC. And we're like law school teachers or we're, we're legal educators for the industry. So as a membership organization, your favorite jewelry companies, because they're almost all members of ours, mm-hmm. and also your mom and pop shops all around the country and the world, as long as they do business in the U.S., can mm-hmm. join us. They call us and they're just like, oh, hey, Maya, I'm launching this new line of products. What can and can I say in my ads? So I do a lot of advertising review. We also get a lot of what I call snitch calls where people are just like, Charity Diamonds is like, hey, Maya, Tina Diamonds across the street is saying this. And I don't think they're supposed to say that, but don't tell them I told you. Click. You know what I mean? (laughs) We get a lot of emails like that. Don't mention me, but I think this is wrong. And, you know, this is my competition. So so we get a lot of that like Mm. on a regular basis. So when we get that, I then I'm usually the point person. I'll send an email to Charity Diamonds and say, It's been brought to our attention (laughs) that this is what you're saying. The Federal Trade Commission guidelines provide the following guidance to our industry. So that's the main source of our legal guidance is the Federal Trade Commission jewelry guidelines. Excuse me. A lot of people don't know jewelry is a heavily regulated industry. So on a daily basis, I deal with the jewelry guidelines, the green guides for green environmental sustainability claims, the National Gold and Silver Stamping Act. Um, we also deal with other laws so and Supreme Court decisions. So like when the Wayfair decision came down mm, a few years right. ago, that was something that we got a ton of phone calls on. Recently, the Made in USA rule, which you should just be, or the Made in USA Act, used to just be a standard. We've been getting a lot of calls. Well, when, when can I use Made in USA? If I do use it, how do I qualify it? Right? Or people don't say, how do I? We tell them you need to qualify it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of deal with a wide variety of issues related to jewelry. We we guide you know the CEOs, the marketing teams. We also act as a resource for a lot of in-house attorneys in those companies. So the GC of, again, your favorite jewelry company is going to call us and say, hey, am I doing this right? Or what do I need to know about this? We also deal with anti-money laundering for the jewelry industry because we are regulated by the exact same law that regulates financial institutions such as Morgan Stanley, which is again why the job description was as as it was. We also have standing to challenge trademarks on behalf of the jewelry industry, thanks to a case from like three decades ago that we litigated. Uh, So we challenge trademarks if we think they're descriptive for the jewelry industry or generic. For instance, white gold, you'd be surprised how many people try to trademark something that describes a very commonly done process of plating gold, coating gold. So we have standing to do that. And as mediator, I also handle mediations for the entire country related to jewelry. So if you call 311 right now and you have an issue related to the purchase of a jewelry item, they're going to direct you to me. If you Google jewelry, need a refund, you're going to see us listed on the FTC websites, on the attorney uh, attorneys general websites, other organization websites. A lot of appraisers send people to us when they say, oh, well, this is not what they told you it was, or you overpaid, they send you to us or me because I'm the only one who does the cases now. Mm. So yeah, it's a lot. That's super interesting and kind of complex too. Yeah. Yeah. More complex than I even imagined. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of people want to know whether you get discounts probably (laughs) if you could even disclose that. So because we work with people across businesses, across all facets of the jewelry industry. So we work with retailers, we work with wholesalers, distributors, diamond cutters, gemologists, whatever. We do enjoy 
wholesale pricing on goods. So we 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 get this. So basically, I buy most of my holiday gifts. You know, last week at Jacob Javits because there's a trade show and we walk around and we do talks at the trade shows that happen oh. around the country and all around the world. We do talks on law and ethics. And when we're there, you buy wholesale. So we're there as speakers, not vendors, but Mm -hmm. most people, especially on the final day, you know, on like day one and day two, there's always like a minimum, like $5,000 minimum. Mm -hmm. But on the final (laughs) day, when they're trying to just get rid of products or minimize the amount they have to carry back home or ship back home, I can buy some earrings or necklaces or rings and I, I get wholesale price or better. There you go, That's audience. Nice. <laughs> yeah. You got the exclusive here. <laughs> but I guess also, does that mean that your work and like working in the industry, has that changed the way that you view jewelry and like your perspective on just the items themselves? Yes. I'm trying to think, what can I say without jeopardizing my job? <laughs> So it's interesting. One, I used to kind of just think, especially luxury items were kind of silly, for lack of a better way to say it. I also come from a very poor upbringing. So like, I didn't give a damn whether my earrings were diamonds or CZs. And I can only afford CZs. So it is what it is. You can't tell the difference looking at them. I also didn't used to give a damn about whether my earrings were real gold or imitation. You know, I go to H&M by chain. I didn't give a damn. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I realized also from my own purchasing experiences, it, you know, the quality of the materials really does impact your skin. In some cases, I'm, I found that I'm allergic to uh, nickel and oh, wow. that's alloyed in a lot of costume jewelry, mm-hmm. which is why I used to always get dark marks when I wore my H&M chains or maybe I shouldn't say the name when I wore my chains, costume chains that, you know, cost like 10 bucks. So the quality matters. It's important to check the stamp on your jewelry items, even though they don't have to be stamped. If they are stamped, you want to make sure the stamp is actually what it says it is. Cause if you're getting issues in the future, you can say, you know, if it's stamped, you can go back to, again, I'm going to say charity diamonds and say, Hey, you sold me this ring. You said it was 14 K and it's stamped 14 K, but if it's not stamped, you can go back and they'll say, Oh no, we told you it was 10. And if you don't have a receipt, required by law you know so just different things i've learned and i also realize now you know even despite some of my personal views the industry particularly luxury goods do support entire populations of people mm. especially in certain parts of africa certain countries in africa a lot of diamond cutting is done in india and again it supports entire populations even in the u.s there are certain parts where manufacturers employ the entire town So, you know, despite your personal viewpoints about the value of jewelry or certain jewelry items, you you realize that it literally, the products literally support entire populations and generations of families. So with that in mind, I I have a, it's changed my viewpoint to a more positive one than it used to be. And also people like to sensationalize certain aspects of the industry and production to sell other competing products. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I'm sure you are pleasantly surprised by the, the new Tiffany ads with the the Beyonce? famous couple. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting with that, with those ads. So just a shameless plug last year, I co-founded and I'm now a board of director of a new trade association. In addition to my full-time job, I also now serve as a director for the Black and Jewelry Coalition to help form, to help increase representation in our industry and provide mm-hmm. resources to underrepresent groups in our industry, particularly Black people. Mm-hmm. And we posted about that new ad campaign, right? Mm-hmm. Beehive, a lot of Beehive people in my in my group. 
And let me tell you, we got some some negative feedback because people were saying, well, that diamond supported, you know, child labor and other human rights violations when it was originally mined and cut and polished or whatever. So it's interesting how we, you know, we had to think of how to respond to that because, you know, we weren't aware of that, or I guess I didn't, we didn't think about it before we posted about it. Cause we were just like, Oh, Beyonce. The optics were all there. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, we know that she or her people support black creatives, including jewelry artists, jewelry designers. So she herself is a big supporter of what we also support. So it's an interesting mix of emotions related to that ad campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah it's very nuanced like all things related yes, to yeah. race and and industry generally mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah well so in terms of like looking towards the future and you already mentioned co-founding a another trade organization can you talk about what your hopes are for the future of your career and where you see yourself going evolving doing etc I have big dreams, Charity. I have big dreams. So I, you know, one thing you you unfortunately deal with when you're in a small organization is a wall, a ceiling. My organization has never had more than three attorneys. Mm. And there's never been higher than, you know, there's always been a junior associate or junior counsel, senior counsel, GC. So at some point, there's nowhere else to move. And I don't think my GC is going anywhere, right? I don't want her to. She's great. So at a certain point, and her and I have had this discussion, it's time to move on. So my ideal would be in the next two to three years, if not sooner, to be in a preferably a larger organization with more room for professional growth and impact. A jewelry business would be great, but I'm not necessarily tied to the industry. I'll be totally transparent. I'm not, even though it's cool. Um, and the discounts are even nicer. Um, sure. <laughs> I'm interested in tech. So I've been doing a bit more in the privacy and cybersecurity realm professionally. So I'd be interested in seeing where that takes me. So it'd be great to either be in-house at, you know, a large jewelry business, preferably multi-international or one of the large tech giants, just because, you know, high impact, really cool to bounce ideas off of a large legal team. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't understate the benefits of that and more money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unlimited so that's resources. Where I'd like to next, yeah. More money, more resources, human and other resources. And yeah, that would be great. Better benefits, you know, at the end of the day, got to keep it real. Mm-hmm. Love the transparency. Yeah. And I'd also like my organization to continue doing the work it's doing and be even more well-funded than we currently are. Well, I really appreciate you sharing all these tips, advice, your journey. It's it's so incredible just to hear from individuals because you never know what, what their story is until yeah. you hear yeah. it. But I'd like to close out the podcast by asking the trademark question is, who is your sister-in-law? And this oh. could be anyone, like someone you know intimately from law school or a celebrity uh, lawyer that you love, anyone you'd like to shout out. Ooh, it's a little hard because I have a lot of, one of my best buddies from law school, I mean, he calls himself a sister, my sister, but uh, I guess he he's not even a practicing attorney now. Who else could I call out? Damn, I don't know how to answer that, actually. I thought about it earlier, but I'm just like, I don't know. I don't, um, 
honestly, one of my, some of my biggest mentees and mentors have not been sisters in, in their regard. Can I get back to you on that? I'm sorry. I'm, am I it killing It could be mom? even yourself. It could be yeah. Maya Owens is the sister-in-law. <laughs> I'm my own sister-in-law. Yes. I mean, I mean, I've kind of navigated this with little guidance and kind of mm. had to figure it out. So yeah, I'll say that as self-serving as it sounds, but I hope to have more sisters-in-law and, you know, anyone who listens to this, who wants to get in touch with me, find me on social media. I'm always willing to have those conversations that are very honest and guide you in any way possible based on my mistakes I've made (laughs) and successes I've had. Yeah, this is why I tried to start this kind of niche community because we need Mm -hmm. it. It's hard to find others. Yeah, but I I appreciate you sharing. (laughs) What was that? Sorry. I said I always try to keep it real with people I speak with. You know, love it. We love authenticity. And speaking of, can you share with the audience where they can get in touch with you, your social media handles, if you like to share that or any way? Sure. I'm not going to share that per se, but you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm sure you spelled the names and the titles. Yeah, definitely. So they can just search me. There's not a lot of people with my name. You can also follow my nonprofit that I founded at Black and Jewelry on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. Are we on Facebook? Instagram and LinkedIn. And we post some cool opportunities for folks. We just did a diamond ring love story contest. Very cool. It's a custom engagement ring. So, you know, some cool opportunities there, even for non-lawyers to join us. Nice. Well, thank you, Maya. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Have a good night. You too. Thank you for listening to this week's conversation. As always, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review and let us know your thoughts on the episode. You can find us on social media on Instagram at SistersInLaw, on Twitter at SistersInLawPod, and like our Facebook page. For a full transcript of this week's episode, go to the website at www.SistersInLaw.org. If you know someone that can benefit from these episodes, feel free to share the podcast with them. Thank you for tuning in this week and stay tuned for our next sister-in-law. Until then, peace and love. Mm-hmm.